You're listening to the Cool Collaborations Podcast, a podcast about success in collaboration, where we hear about collaboration successes from around the world, and we'll look into what made those collaborations work. I'm your host, Scott Miller. Hello, and welcome to episode number 36 of the Cool Collaborations Podcast. For this episode, I am not being joined by any guests. Rather, I will be answering a few questions that have been posed to me in the last season by some of the listeners to the podcast. It's certainly great to get questions from listeners, and if anything comes to your mind that you'd like to ask, please don't hesitate to send it along to me. My email is in the show notes. So let's kick off this question and answer episode with a question that has been posed by Catherine. Catherine asks how I got into this line of work how I ended up helping people collaborate, you know, exploring what collaboration is, and even having a podcast about collaboration. Interestingly, my career path was not targeted at becoming somebody who is an expert in collaboration, but rather I kind of fell into it. I started my career as an aquatic biologist. I spent a lot of time running a jet boat and catching and measuring fish all across Western Canada. I've had the opportunity through that work to run and do sampling on every river in Alberta and British Columbia, as well as many down in the United States and even some in the Northwest Territories. So in my early career, I spent a lot of time in the field with a crew doing science-y kinds of things. But none of that experience led me to the understanding of collaboration that I have today. It wasn't really until I began work with the government and started to work across different groups, even across provinces, to figure out ways to solve specific issues that were facing, you know, governments in general. And I'm thinking in that day, it was things like invasive species or water quality or ecosystem management. And then also seeing how all of those things make managing natural resources quite complex. And that's where I started to get this inkling about how important it was to collaborate. As I moved through my career, I began to take on more and more of those kinds of complex questions and working across different perspectives, sometimes even with people from opposing sides of an issue that were quite uh, entrenched in their views, let's say. What it seemed to me was that I had a bit of a knack for navigating in those situations uh, because I was getting some pretty positive results. But even at that point, even though what I was doing could be called collaboration, I didn't really know what I was doing to influence the results. It was just how I approached the issue and the results that came from it that started to make me think about it. Maybe I'll provide a little bit of an example. So early in my career, I was asked to prepare a presentation as part of a job interview. Now, the question that was posed to me was how I would work with another level of government to resolve some of the difficulties in how those two levels of government were working together. So there was a clash essentially between the provincial and the federal governments. And some of the early confrontational approaches that had happened had kind of put a sour taste in everybody's mouth. And so with that context, I was asked for this particular interview to present my thoughts on how to address the situation. So to prepare, I phoned up a senior leader in the federal government and asked the question and had a conversation about how we would resolve the kinds of differences we were seeing between the two jurisdictions. 
And what I discovered through that conversation was that the federal government folks were considering the same question, the same one on which I'd been asked to present, like, how do we make this work better? Because we've had some missteps and now we need to fix the issue. When I finally presented for my job interview, I laid out some of my thoughts on how we could proceed and also described how I had been in contact with this federal team member. And I remember distinctly how surprised my interviewers were that I had made contact and that I'd had that discussion to prepare for my presentation. At the time, I was thinking there wasn't any other way to come up with an answer without being you know, entirely speculative. Like, why wouldn't I talk to somebody who was part of the problem to see how we could proceed? You know, another example comes to mind, and that's at another point in my career, I had the opportunity to develop a new way of creating some rules and requirements for oil and gas development. So my boss's boss, his name was Cal, had arranged for a discussion with an organization that was sometimes critical of the place where I worked. And for lots of different reasons, Cal asked me to lead the discussion, in part because it was an idea that I had come up with. And I could tell that he was a bit apprehensive about how this idea would be received and how the discussion would go. So I presented the idea and then we spent some time talking as a group and listening to one another and exploring the potential of this idea that we had put on the table. Now, for their part, the people we were talking to started off kind of skeptically and slowly through the course of our discussion, I think it was probably an hour or so, moved to be a lot more supportive and kind of towards the end a little bit more enthusiastic about the idea. And at the time... It seemed like a completely normal discussion to me. It wasn't, there wasn't any special preparation. There weren't any planning meetings or tactics. To me, it was just a conversation. But Cal came away from it amazed at how the folks we had been talking to had come around. He kept talking about how I had not reacted to any of the criticisms, but had really just asked some questions and listened, and there had been a dialogue occurring. And so just to be clear, I don't think I did anything special, and I'm pretty sure there's lots of people who did what I did. But I'm telling those two stories only to describe some of the things that led me to understand how I was using collaboration. It wasn't until I started to reflect back on what I was good at as part of a career change and remembering some of the things that I had heard from people like Cal throughout my career that I really started to think about my way of collaborating. And then I started putting a structure around that concept of collaboration. So when you hear me speak of things like purpose and people and creativity as part of collaboration, that's the framework I started to build. And then I started to lay in on top of that framework how I was working and how what I was doing fit into that framework. So that's a long answer to your question, Catherine, but the short answer is that I meandered my way through a career doing things that could be considered collaboration, but that I didn't realize were collaboration at the time. And the reason I stay focused on this today is because the results that have come from sort of my approach to doing things have been almost universally positive. In a couple of cases, I've seen successes where I didn't think it was possible, but that turned on some of the smallest details like listening 
and actually hearing what people were saying and using that as part of the response moving forward. All of these pieces are like little nuggets that are part of collaboration that have kept me focused in this area for a long time. Thanks, Catherine, for your, for your question. My second question comes from Emmer. Emmer asked me how I would suggest getting people to collaborate who are perhaps reluctant or not aware that they should be collaborating. You know, it's a great question because it really speaks to kind of my goals for promoting good collaboration and more collaboration. At its root, though, collaboration is really an effort of the willing. Unfortunately, the things that prevent us from collaborating are not things that are easily explained away. It's really hard to rationalize or logic somebody into collaboration. And what I mean is that it's almost always about convincing somebody to do something that they're uncertain of or afraid of or opposed to doing in the first place. So the things we need to do to convince somebody to collaborate often have very little to do with collaboration or making the case for collaboration. You know, what comes to mind for me is the five core concerns that are described by Roger Fisher and Dan Shapiro in, in their book, Beyond Reason. Now, these core concerns are really things that we seek as individuals, that if they're fulfilled, we feel more connected and supported and able to agree. In the context of the book, the core concerns are spoken of as ways to be more successful in negotiation. And now I have to try to remember what the five core concerns are. So I think they're appreciation, autonomy, affiliation, because there's the three A's, and then there is status and role. Now, essentially, appreciation is kind of self-explanatory. It's, it's sort of whether and how much we feel appreciated. And that response, that emotional response to level of appreciation will affect how we act. Of course, appreciation can go from being not appreciated, so very negative, to being appreciated and positive. And in fact, you can even sort of go the other way and be over-appreciated, and then it just comes across as feeling fake. I would say when it comes to collaboration, that this appreciation concern or core concern is a big driver because people are often afraid that they will not be appreciated when they're in a group. This is especially true in a group where all of the participants are unfamiliar with one another, where they're strangers, even more so when there is some that know one another and some that don't. It just raises a certain level of apprehension or fear. I think autonomy is another big one because we all like to have a level of control over our actions. So that's what autonomy is all about. And by design, collaboration can potentially change how much control we have. And so nobody likes that feeling of losing control and it's more likely to happen in a group setting and so collaboration comes with that burden, if you will. Affiliation is really about the kinds of groups with which we are seen to be connected. So usually it's around employment, but it can be around families, it can be around clubs, those types of things, interests. And it also plays a role, especially if, in collaboration that is, if you are having to represent an organization. So your affiliation becomes much more important in that sense, for collaboration. Status and role have much to do with how we might interact with the group or with other people. I've experienced cases where people with high status, so experts, 
are less likely to want to collaborate on an issue because they feel they already know the answer or that their expertise will be called into question. Again, it kind of interacts back with affiliation and appreciation. So then the issue becomes one of actually trying to address these kinds of concerns and the emotions that kind of come with them in the people you wish to collaborate with before you start collaboration. I think for me, the way I would approach convincing someone to collaborate is really to focus less on the fact we're going to collaborate and more on the intent or the focus or the problem that I'm trying to address and that requires their input. It kind of requires you to paint a bit of a vision of what it could be and how the expertise of the people you're trying to get to collaborate fold into that vision. It's really around seeking someone's advice and collaboration becomes the result of that, the only way to move forward, knowing that there is some complexity in whatever issue you're trying to address. It's almost like you're seeking advice from the people you are trying to collaborate with or that you're trying to encourage to collaborate on how best to collaborate. By asking that question, it helps people invest themselves in doing it with others so that there's a variety of expertise and it focuses less on the method than on the potential of working together to solve the problem. Thanks, Emmer, for that question. The third question comes from Ed, and Ed asks how to promote more and better collaboration between frontline staff and management inside an organization. So this seems to me like encouraging collaboration between the people who might run the day-to-day operations and those who manage the whole organization. I really like this question because it's actually a bridge between the concept of collaboration and the idea of good leadership. Some of my previous guests, like Peter Fisk and Alex Ryan and others, have mentioned this idea that the things that make for good collaboration are also the things that make good leaders inside an organization and outside an organization. When we think about the key aspects of collaboration, I think of them as having a clear purpose or intent, being able to connect people, in other words, being inclusive of people and ideas and perspective. And then, of course, this final element is around being creative and using our imagination to solve or work through sort of complex problems or complex issues. Often when we think about collaboration, we kind of default to this idea of different groups or different organizations working together. That's often when the examples that I deal with is I'm working in collaboration with a group of people that represent government or government and environmental groups and industry and indigenous peoples. And I think often when we use that word collaboration, that's what comes to mind. We don't think of collaboration necessarily as being inside an organization, although sometimes we may see it as in the guise of a quote-unquote special project. If we take those three elements of collaboration, you know, purpose, people, and creativity, or put another way as intent, inclusivity, and imagination, from the perspective of, let's say, the hierarchy inside an organization, then I think we can still say that all of those elements apply. So organizations and companies exist for a reason. They're providing a service or they're delivering a product, and they're providing a livelihood for their employees. That purpose exists for all levels of the organization, regardless of whether you're at the mailroom or you're in the C-suite. 
And as I see it, at least the job of management is to promote that purpose and then set a vision for how that purpose will be achieved for everybody inside the organization. And this is actually no different than collaboration or, or working in a collaborative setting where the purpose of the collaboration needs to be clear and, and everybody needs to understand it and everybody needs to be on board. So there isn't a difference that I can see there. If we think about the connecting portion, people, you know, about being inclusive of people and their identities and their perspectives, I think this is sometimes where collaboration or at least the concepts, the elements of collaboration inside an organization might not work so well. I think to a degree, this is where Ed's question is focused. It's on having different viewpoints come to bear inside an organization. I think there's sometimes a tendency to disregard a group of people or maybe individuals because we've made a judgment that they have nothing to contribute or that they're somehow not qualified. And so it falls to the organizers of a collaboration or the leaders of an organization, depending on the context here, to apply a mindset of seeing value from everyone. Or I guess more precisely, you could say seeing the potential for value from anyone or from anywhere. An example comes to mind for me is Ray Dalio, who founded Bridgewater Associates, which is one of the largest hedge funds in the world. And one of the core pillars of Bridgewater is a principle of idea meritocracy. And idea meritocracy is really about judging ideas based on whether or not they're good ideas and not on who they came from or why they were brought up. It kind of rules out this idea of presupposing the quality of an idea based on who brings it to the table. This idea that if an executive brings forward an idea, then it's automatically better than somebody from the frontline operations. The system at Bridgewater allows good ideas and critiques of those ideas to come from anywhere in real time. They actually have a, an app that they use inside the company that they can use live in meetings to judge ideas that are brought forward. But underneath this system at Bridgewater is a value that states that good ideas can come from anywhere and from anybody. If you want to check out more on Ray Dalio's approach to things like idea meritocracy, it's worth checking out his book, and it's called Principles, Life and Work. I guess, Ed, perhaps the key takeaway is that good leadership and good management reflect a lot of the principles and values that underpin good collaboration. Thanks, Ed, for that question. Even though I haven't received a question specific to the state of collaboration in the world today, I'd like to make a point around a concept that uh, Pradeep UN and I described or talked about in our last episode. And towards the end of the episode, Pradeep talked about this idea of not putting ourselves in boxes, essentially not giving ourselves labels or labeling ourselves as this or that. I have to say, I've been thinking a lot about what he said, and I initially very much agreed with this idea of seeing ourselves as humans and not necessarily seeing ourselves as the labels that we are applying to ourselves or that are applied to us. But as I got thinking about it more and more, I'm not sure it's necessarily the label or the box that we put ourselves in that's the problem. In many cases, the label is simply a way of describing our identity. I think the challenge comes from how we collectively use those labels. I mean, it's a bit of a nuanced kind of discussion because 
we are seeking to be inclusive. If we're seeking to be inclusive, then the labels that we are applying help us understand who may or may not have been included. When I think about Indigenous peoples, the term Indigenous is a label and it is an identity. And it's an important identity that we need to respect. The challenge comes when those labels come with our judgments. Uh, You can call them stereotypes or biases or any number of things, but it's the judgment that's the problem. We see somebody in a wheelchair, which is a fact, and we judge them to be disabled. We see that somebody is a woman and we judge them to be weaker. We see somebody that is brown and we might judge them to be inferior. Our world is too full of judgments that are based on labels, based on not knowing the person or the people that we are speaking about. Today, as we speak, the people in Ukraine are dying because one person has labeled them and judged them. If there is a message that I'd like to emphasize relating to collaboration, it's this. We as humans need to work really hard to take the judgment out of our labels and out of the boxes that we identify ourselves in or as. If we can simply accept without judgment, we will have gone a long way to making the world a better place. And it also makes for good collaboration too. So I'd like to wrap up with this one last question. Catherine, from our first question, asks about my most gifted book. It seems only fair that I answer this one question that I almost always ask my guests. For me, it's a book by Chris Voss called Never Split the Difference. I've given this book a number of times to teammates and to friends. You know, I first listened to the book as an audiobook, and I highly recommend the audiobook version of it because the narration adds so much character to the book. Michael Kramer narrates as the voice of the author, and he does a fantastic job of bringing this book to life. I remember bursting out laughing while listening to it. One of the reasons I like Never Split the Difference is that it is about using seemingly simple tools to great effect in very high-stakes situations. Chris Voss was an FBI hostage negotiator working all over the world, and he tells stories of behavioral psychology and empathy and other tools that are used by the FBI in cases where people's lives are at stake. After listening to the audiobook, I went out and bought the actual physical book, and then I went out and bought a whole bunch of the physical books and proceeded to give them away as gifts. I am hoping one day to have Chris Voss on the podcast. Chris, if you're listening, let's connect and talk about collaboration. And so with that, we come to the end of this solo episode. I want to say thank you to everyone who asked questions, and I encourage any of you to reach out if you have any questions of your own that you'd like me to address or perhaps even to forward on or provide or ask my guests in a future episode. If you know somebody who would appreciate this podcast or any of our conversations about how to make collaboration better and more widespread, please take a moment and pass this along to them. It helps me and this podcast if you leave your comments and your ratings on the podcast platform that you use because it helps spread the message about collaboration. Until the next episode, Thank you and happy collaborating. You've been listening to Cool Collaborations. Please make sure you visit collaboration-dynamics.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, in Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to sign up for our mailing list 
So interesting things like blog posts, upcoming training, or collaboration tips and tricks can come to your inbox. If you like what you heard, I'd be grateful for a rating in Apple Podcasts. Of course, if you'd like to just tell a friend about the show, that would be great too. Check out the show notes for links and contact information. Until the next episode, thanks and happy collaborating.